This is District Sentinel Radio. I'm Sam Sachs. Sam Knight is in London trying to pants Boris Johnson. Godspeed, SK1. He'll be back next week. Check out the website districtsentinel.com. So we're doing a special Thursday edition of The Garbage Can. Plus, journalist Owen Higgins is on the show for an extended chat on the state of the Democratic primary. If you're a subscriber, you'll get to hear it all on this episode. If you're not a subscriber, you'll hear the Owen interview, but you're going to have to subscribe at patreon.com slash district sentinel to listen to the full episode with the garbage can. Just a reminder, all new $5 monthly subscribers get access to all the content we put out and their own haiku written for them and read on the air. I'm going to read a few later on. But before we get to all of that, in addition to throwing someone in the garbage can at the end of the show, it's time we recognize greatness by placing someone on the honor can right now. So, interns, bring in the honor can. There we go. Just uh, drag it on this way. Well, don't drag it. Try not to drag it too much. We want to keep it in good condition. It is the honor can, after all. We want it to be pristine. We want it smelling nice. We want it comfortable. Right there's good. Thank you. Easy choice this week. David Karp is getting the honor. The George Washington University professor called New York Times columnist Brett Stevens a bed bug. And, well, the rest is fucking history. We'll get more into Stephen's reaction to the insult later when we do the garbage can. But Carp not only delivered a stellar own of Brett Stevens, but then milked the whole thing perfectly to maximize the embarrassment for the New York Times columnist. The whole display from the insulting tweet to sharing Brett's email to his boss to then granting interviews and writing their own story on the matter. Carp has handled this beautifully. And for that, he deserves the District Sentinel's highest honors. David Karpf, you are going on the honor cam. All right. Well, well done, David. Enjoy yourself there. Okay, garbage can coming up for the subscribers at the end of the show. Right now, though, for everyone, it's time to play the conversation Owen and I had earlier today about the Democratic primary. It's perfect timing, too, because Owen needed to eat shit over a bad prediction he made. Joined now by senior editor, staff writer at Common Dreams, friend of the show. Going for, you probably have the record for most appearances on District Sentinel Radio, but if you don't, uh, maybe you do now. Owen Higgins, welcome back. Thanks, Sam. How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. Uh, This is uh, fortuitous timing for you to come on the show, given that back in 2017, you boldly predicted that Kirsten Gillibrand would be the Democratic nominee for 2020. And yesterday, she dropped out of the race. Owen, commence your shit eating. Well, I was wrong. And... uh... (laughs) Not a frequent occurrence when it comes to political predictions. Uh, it's only happened every other time. But yeah. no, I was I was I, I overestimated her um, political savvy and her ruthlessness. 
yeah, it was just I I, mean, I, it, I was totally wrong about that. I thought I I really I honestly thought that she was. I mean, I think the thing about Joe Brand that I always thought was going to help her was her just complete willingness to shift with whichever way the wind was uh, blowing. So I thought that that kind of like reptilian survival instinct would allow her to pivot progressively enough to get some of those votes and be an acceptable option for voters while still, you know, being the darling of the establishment. But, um, no, it was just a total disaster. I don't even well, know. I, I, she should have dropped out way before this, yeah. honestly. I mean, in your defense, I feel like that prediction came out of a place of cynicism toward the Democratic Party and presidential politics in assuming that uh, popular candidates who could actually beat Donald Trump, who do energize voters like Bernie Sanders, would be denied the nomination again by the Democratic Party because it is committed to failure and preserving uh, the status quo of having their wealthy contributors run things. So obviously someone like Kirsten Gillibrand or some other moderate would win. But this is one of the few times, I think, in which taking a, a cynical approach to how the Democrats are going to manage this primary has been wrong because we do have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, as seemingly the two strongest candidates in the primary because I'm, I'm banking on the fact that Joe Biden is still uh, going to collapse. His campaign is going to collapse. And in fact, you have another prediction related to that. And this comes from a more, I guess, optimistic and less cynical view of Democratic uh, politics is that Joe Biden will probably drop out of the race before o- Iowa. Yes, although that is actually based on cynicism. I, I kind of elaborated this on uh, Wayne Gladstone's Contrarian Court podcast, um, but I, I think that the party elders are just going to force him out because it's obvious that his brain is just melting out of his ears, and he and and I think that as well. What's probably more important to them is, uh, you know, the idea that he could somehow jeopardize Obama's legacy or how Obama's remembered within the party. And yeah, I mean, I, I just, I just think that I think he's doomed. I think he, I think he's going to drop out and I, I don't even think it's going to really be his decision. I think he's going to get forced out. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I don't see how it's sustainable the way the campaign is going right now. And You've seen the reports of advisors wanting to limit his campaign appearances because he can't seem to string together sentences anymore. Uh, yeah, that's that's an unsustainable campaign that can't even continue for, I mean, I guess what, I was five months away? How, how can this continue for five more months? But but if the, if the party does decide if you if your argue if your argument's correct that this is going to be a decision made within the party that we have to uh, nicks Joe Biden right now before he ruins this for all of us and then destroys the Obama legacy that we cling to. That is going to help Bernie Sanders. I mean, most of the people who support Biden, their second choice is Sanders. I know that people who focus like us who focus on policy and are are really up to date on what the candidates each stand for. At first, that might seem like it's weird that there's a lot of crossover support, 
between Sanders and Biden. But I guess from a, a retail politics perspective, someone who's maybe not as plugged in, they are very similar candidates in the way they speak and represent a certain era of authenticity, even though Joe Biden is not that at all. He just plays that on TV, whereas Bernie Sanders is the real deal. Do you think that, I guess, Democratic operatives are aware that the only thing stopping Bernie Sanders from running away with this thing right now is Biden being in the race? And maybe you disagree with that. I don't know. I don't think that voters who would go from Biden to Sanders think so much think that the men are similar as as, as that they just have high name recognition. Yeah, that could be too. You know, I, I, I guess it just kind of brings up, you, you know, your second point or your, your question really kind of brings up the question of how is the party going to handle a surging Bernie Sanders? And I think that they're going to do one of two things. Either they're just going to hope that he wins a plurality but not a majority so that they can strip the nomination from him in the second round and onwards when superdelegates can vote, which I think is the most likely thing. Yeah, I do too. If he somehow wins the nomination, um, they sit on their hands and let Trump win, which I think is the second most likely outcome. Well, it's the, most, it's the most likely if he does actually get the nomination. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and because people like, uh, you know, the Center for American So-Called Progress, those those kinds of people would rather have another four years of Trump and then and and have somebody like Sanders lose to Trump and then pivot to the right. Then they would want to have even four years of somebody like Sanders who presents even even if Sanders wasn't able to get much done legislatively, what his election would do to the consulting class that make all of their money off of the uh, off of off of the Democratic Party would would just be would be devastating for their yeah. careers. So I know I know they talk a lot of they talk a lot of shit about how much they uh, they care about making sure that Trump uh, is defeated. And and how 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 bad he is for the country and and for the world, but when it really comes down to it, they'd be much more comfortable with another four years of him than of than four years of Sanders, who although he is a very loyal Democrat and always has been, does represent a part of the party that has not been in power for a long time and kind of has its own superstructure. Yeah, I, I, I see this coming down to the convention ultimately as well. I mean, if you look at 2016, in which it was just a two-person race, Hillary Clinton didn't clinch a majority of delegates until very late in the primary stage, and with the help of a lot of the superdelegates that she had already collected. So that was with a two-person race. Hillary Clinton barely got the majority of delegates that she needed. So we're looking at, I guess when the primaries actually start, it'll probably be like a five person race, four or five, six person race. Um, most of the contests are proportional representation in the democratic field. I see that Bernie has staying power. He has donations constantly rolling in small dollar donations. He has a huge war campaign war chest. 
he's in it till the end. He's going to be accruing delegates every step of the way until this contest is over. I don't see any situation in which he's forced out of this contest. He has his support. He has his money. He has his operation and he's in it till the end. And I think that there are going to be a few other candidates who are going to be in this to the end for the sole purpose of denying Sanders uh, a majority of delegates. I don't see a scenario in which any candidate is able to get a majority of delegates given the way it's organized. So, yeah, this is coming down to the convention, (laughs) at which point maybe Bernie should hire Paul Manafort or someone to whip whip the votes at the DNC. I know that for... Let's see, since I'd say four years now, I've said that there was no way that Sanders could possibly win the nomination. I'm no longer sure about that. I still think it's unlikely. But I guess so then I guess the question is, well, there are two things. First of all, anybody who wants him to win and is politically active, not just an observer like we are, should take what we're saying as as serious that like if you want him to win you have to do whatever you what it, literally whatever it takes to give him a majority because otherwise they're going to fuck him out of it. Yeah. But the second thing is assuming that he doesn't get a majority which which I think that even even if he somehow got out of the convention with the nomination I don't think he goes in with the majority. I don't think anybody does. How does he whip the votes? How does he get the superdelegates to and I, and I think that you you would just need to basically have something like, you know, like 300,000 people surrounding, I don't even know where they're having the convention, but like surrounding whatever convention center it is, like screaming through the walls, like in that old Bible story, trying to like break down the convention walls, because that's the only kind of show of force that you could have that would convince people to, because even if he got 49%, and Harris got like seven percent. Superdelegates would still give it to Harris. Yeah, like n- people people need to understand that. Like they don't they they don't give a shit. They don't care because they and also because they know that there's just no way that Sanders will do anything. He he won't go and uh, run an independent run, campaign or something. Run third party. There's no way. So they can they can do whatever they want to him, and and he will not betray his party people need to be prepared for that i think yeah i'm curious what role elizabeth warren plays in this eventuality in which like i was under the impression for a bit that i mean obviously sanders and warren are close personally as individuals they've worked together on a lot of things they've uh done projects together they've cut you know videos together uh online i i think that there is a a partnership between the two of them. And I wouldn't be surprised if either of them picked the other uh, as a running mate down the road. I mean, who? I, I don't want to predict anything and there are other names out there floating around. But if, if someone like, if Sanders and Warren both together combined have a majority of delegates and Sanders has more than Warren, I mean, do you see a, a situation in which Warren would would tell her delegates to support Sanders? Would that actually happen? Or does that just set up Warren to be the compromise candidate to come out of the convention if she does have a huge amount of delegates, not as many as Bernie, not a majority, but clearly a candidate that uh, could get establishment Democrats 
uh, on board more so than Bernie Sanders, even though I'm not fully convinced that the establishment is open to Warren yet as much as they're just pretending to to sort of drive a wedge. There's a question in there somewhere. It's more of a, I guess, a discussion topic here on like the role that a, a Warren campaign that has this same popularity heading into a convention might play in that convention. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have, a, I have a very difficult time imagining Warren bucking the party that much. I mean, she didn't and, in 2016, right? She had her chance to endorse Bernie in 2016, and she didn't. She endorsed Clinton. Well, I think that she endorsed Clinton once it was clear that Clinton would win. Yeah. I, like, I don't think that she did that. I, it wasn't decisive no matter what. I mean, I remember people getting really upset with her that she didn't endorse Sanders uh, before Massachusetts. Yeah, I think it's more so that it's not that she endorsed Hillary because she did only do it after Hillary was going to win. It's that she didn't endorse Bernie when she could have made a difference in the primary. So let me let me just say one thing about that. There's no way Sanders would have won Massachusetts over over Clinton. It's yeah. it simply just would not happen. Um, even even with her endorsement, she's not that popular. And and Clinton, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and keep this digression pretty compact. But basically, I think one thing that people forget is that Clinton spent decades funneling money from donors from her super PACs to candidates across the country, mostly women, who were elected for the first time, many of them, thanks to Hillary Clinton's money. And she also funneled money to um, to other candidates. And, and by funneled, I'm not saying there was anything shady. I mean, this was just like normal fundraising. It's hard to imagine it now because of how much of a disaster her 2016 campaign was, but Clinton's grip over the party was almost total at that point. She was very, very powerful, and within the Democratic Party, she was very popular. And one of the reasons was because she spent so much money getting people elected for like 20 years. So I think that the idea that the endorsement from a four-year senator would have changed the outcome in Massachusetts, especially one of like the most like old guard Democratic Party states, and also where I lived for most of my life, is ridiculous. Going off of that, one thing that, that Warren has done since 2016 is follow that model. Follow that model of raising money. I think she gave the most money to other candidates last uh, cycle. She's doing the same thing to kind of get a grip on the party infrastructure. And I think that it's important to understand that when we say things like not being sure how much the party establishment really likes her. Because I I think that they do. I think that they understand that she wants to play by the rules and with the team that's already playing. And again, Sanders is not going to break the rules, by which I mean leave the party and run third party. But the, the challenge that he presents is that he's going to upend the establishment and just put his own establishment, which would be more progressive, into power. Yeah. And I don't think that Warren really wants to do that. Yeah, I, I, I see it the same way there. 
Let me let me uh, bring up two other candidates here um, who are a bit on the periphery, one more so than the other. A lot of people online are lamenting the fact that Tulsi Gabbard will not be on the debate stage. I guess putting aside the mechanics of qualifying for debates and whether or not opposing views are being shut out. <laughs> You've written about Tulsi Gabbard in the past. Grade her on how effectively she's managed to rebrand herself or package herself as some sort of dove anti-imperialist when in reality she's anything but. Yeah, I think I think that she's done a good job of doing that. Does that, I mean, how many people really know who she is or care, I think, is maybe the question of like whether or not she's been able to rebrand herself. She's been able to rebrand herself as an anti-imperialist for like negligible amount of people on the left. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm talking about people like, you know, Glenn Greenwald, Michael Tracy, who aren't really, I mean, I don't want to get in this debate about whether or not they're on the left. I mean, Glenn Greenwald styles himself as like an objective journalist. So he has been convinced that the the sort of anger that the media has toward Tulsi Gabbard is a result of her being an anti-imperialist. You have people like Jimmy Dore, who I thought was a Bernie supporter, is now a Tulsi Gabbard surrogate, an official Tulsi Gabbard surrogate. And it's like, I mean, on what issue when it comes to foreign policy is Tulsi Gabbard actually better than Bernie Sanders on? And Bernie Sanders ain't great. He's improved considerably since 2016 and he has and he probably is the when it comes to elected officials in the u.s the best when it comes to foreign policy at this point i'm not sure who's better in the senate or even in the house like what what is the excuse of people who did support bernie to now be jumping on board tulsi gabbard who as recently as 2016 described herself as a hawk when it comes to the war on terror i feel like there's this weird weird sort of Bernie left element that's uh, that wants Tulsi Gabbard in the race when probably that's and I haven't looked at the the polls on this but I would guess that and she's only polling at one percent so it's it's there's not many votes but if any candidate is pulling support from Bernie Sanders it's it's probably Tulsi Gabbard just you know, I don't, the, the you know, I, don't she, I don't think I don't think that's true I don't okay. think that's true and I also want to say about her, like that she's clearly not anti-imperialist. She just opposes certain wars that the uh, Democratic establishment likes. I mean, and she then, was specifically asked by Virgil Texas recently, and there's a video of this: "Is she an anti-imperialist?" And she sort of like fumbles through the question and answers it by saying, "I love America." <laughs> yeah, I mean, just total. I mean, whatever. I mean, people can read my writing on her if they want to know my opinion on her. I think it, yeah. it's pretty clear. But, yeah, I, I I don't think that she is taking support from Sanders, though. I really don't. I, I think I guess that she's not taking support from anyone because she's polling at 1%, really. But <laughs> her supporters, the majority of her supporters are going to go back to Trump. Okay? Uh, that's where you think, huh? Yeah. Her supporters are not the, the kind of people who are going to go to Sanders. Maybe a few of them are. And as far as Sanders' anti-imperialism goes... And anti-war. I mean, that was that was my biggest issue with him in 2016. It's probably still my biggest issue with him now, but he's better on it than he was. Mm -hmm. And I think that honestly, 
you know, coming from someone who criticized him a lot f- three or four years ago, and I'm not suggesting that I had anything to do with this, but he was criticized by people that he would actually listen to who actually matter. Yeah. Not me. And, <laughs> and he has rethought and changed some of his positions. I mean, that's, so I, that's the great thing about the Sanders campaign is that it does listen to criticism and does, and does try to change in response to that criticism, which is why I get like a little bit annoyed by the, by Sanders supporters who like immediately jump at anyone who criticizes him, even his own, even fellow supporters of Sanders who are like, you cannot criticize the candidate. We are in a war right now against libs. If you criticize Sanders, you're helping Joe Biden get elected. That's the case, shutting down all criticism of Sanders. And it's like, no, it's okay to criticize Sanders because the campaign's actually listening and will respond to that criticism and grow and be better. Right, exactly. I mean, that seems to, especially if you look at like his position on uh israel palestine which you know i i I hate to say it to people but like it was not as good as it is now then like i know that people are trying to rewrite history and make it seem like he was always as good on this issue as he is now no but that's simply not true like like he got to that point over the last few years or or if he if he really uh, held these positions in the past, well, he's certainly more vocal with them now, right? So, yeah, I think you're right. I think they do listen to criticism. Um, I think the people that think that he shouldn't be criticized are are being very short-sighted about that. But, yeah, I mean, but just to go back to, like, Gabbard, I mean, I think that this is an expression from people who, yeah, who who, who either, you know, are going to go back to Trump or for whatever reason, you know, prefer her. I mean, obviously there are certain people whose um, careers and followings are built on kind of winking at the alt-right while they uh, perform as, as left-wingers in their uh, journalism or, or whatever it is they do online. But anybody honest who is looking at her and looking at her positions, I, I just I just don't see how you can possibly say that she is anti-imperialist or, or on the left. Let me bring up uh, one last candidate here who did make the final debate stage and a candidate who has probably seen their support grow, multiply at a faster rate than any other candidate, maybe second to Elizabeth Warren. And that's uh, Andrew Yang, who is like broken into fifth place and is pulling at like 4% or 5% or something. He's made as, um, I guess, a central part of his campaign, the universal basic income, although his UBI is a weak version of the UBI, a, a type of UBI that leftists shouldn't trust because it's meant to replace the social safety net, not... Uh, add to the social safety net. Um, do you think that Andrew Yang's popularity is related to the UBI, that people are interested in this idea, which is driving them to Yang? Or is it something else that like, oh, Yang is sort of just like a different sort of entity that 
people are interested in because he doesn't seem like the typical politician. Yeah, I mean, I know that Jimmy Dore had Yang on his program, and I saw a clip from it, and he pretty much eviscerated Yang on the fact that his UBI is based on right-wing talking points, and he did pretty well, uh, did a pretty good job doing that. So I think that, you know, what what Yang is running on is actually a pretty right-wing um, proposal, which is, um, as he said on the Dave Rubin show, and I'm going to paraphrase here, uh, but basically that UBI, putting money into UBI would get rid of social safety net programs, which are really the problem. Um, so this guy is running a libertarian tech bro yeah. right-wing campaign. Um, he is, I only know one member of the Yang gang in real life, uh, <laughs> you know, who was a Sanders supporter in 2016. And I, I'm not sure how seriously he really takes politics at this point. Um, I'm not even sure how serious he is about Yang. I haven't talked to him in a while, but, uh, I don't, I don't really know where his support comes from. Again, I remember when he first kind of burst onto the scene, there were reports that a lot of these guys were kind of like Pepe, all right, motherfuckers who were jumping on to him because of how ironically funny it was. Um, it does seem like he gained some traction. It probably is because he's promising to give everybody a thousand dollars yeah. a month and people just kind of like stop listening then and don't listen to like what comes after that, which again would be like the destruction of the social safety net. I mean, look, when he's on stage, he's certainly not the worst one. Um, <laughs> but I don't, I just don't, he just doesn't really appeal to me. I just, he, he doesn't seem particularly interesting as a candidate um, and also he has he just has no chance of, of, of gaining any traction I mean like his his ideas are just I mean like if 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 you're going to crumble when faced with with some very basic pushback on what your UBI means for employers um, on a YouTube show then I don't think that you're really ready for prime time <laughs> We'll see, man. I, I, I like. I, I feel like. I feel like Yang has staying power. We'll see how long he's in the race here for. But, I mean, personally, I'm. I'm a fan of of UBI, Universal Basic Income, a strong version of UBI. I think it could be a transformational policy. I know that there's criticisms from the left toward it, especially a weak version of UBI, which I don't fuck with. But if you have a strong UBI that's paid for through wealth transfers that runs in addition to the social safety net and to things like single payer healthcare, I think it's a worthwhile policy. And also the criticism toward it that, oh, well, you know, we're just going to cut people a check and then they won't become revolutionary foot soldiers anymore. I was like, well, you can use that argument against any slew of progressive social reform policies, whether it's single payer health care or raising the minimum wage or any of that stuff, you could say that any of these measures pacify the population from becoming revolutionary. But I like I know Bernie was asked about this when he was interviewed by uh, Crystal Ball about whether he supports a UBI. And he said that, no, he doesn't because it wouldn't incentivize incentivize work which you know if to me if someone wants to like not go and build highways for the government or whatever and they want to just stay at home and 
paint pictures and sculpt, that's fine with me. They should still make be able to earn an income that allows them to live and have access to basic services. And it's probably better for the economy if they have money to be to be spending and stuff like that. So I don't know, I guess from a personal perspective, it's 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 good seeing UBI brought up. It's bad that it the weak version is the one that's brought forward. And I sort of wish the Sanders campaign could get behind a stronger UBI in addition to a federal job that like these aren't incompatible. You can guarantee anybody who wants a job, a job with a living wage and also guarantee people who don't want a job uh, some sort of livelihood for themselves as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I also listened to that interview. I'm not sure I would agree with your interpretation of what he meant there. I, I think that I don't, I don't think that the idea of again, I like this is just my interpretation of it, but like it, it was not my understanding that the idea of work was was solely about infrastructure construction. Sure, uh, sure, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that's, I mean, and, maybe work is similar to a WPA in which people are hired to paint murals and shit. Exactly. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, I like Write I don't. Books. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. I I don't think that it's a hundred percent. Just has to be building roads. I think that there's, as I've said on numerous occasions, Sanders is functionally a New Deal liberal, yeah. and New Deal liberals are are very into the idea of of WPA and very into the idea of paying people to do all kinds of work that is good for society on a whole bunch of different levels, whether or not it's like somebody who wants to help rebuild the roads and the bridges or somebody who wants to paint or sculpt or write or, or somebody who wants to, uh, I don't know, program video games or some shit, mm-hmm. whatever. I've always gotten the impression that the fundamental underpinning of what Sanders is wants to do is something to the general effect of what FDR did. And so I, so I guess what I'm trying to say is I just don't think those things are incompatible. Oh, and wrapping things up here and my turn to eat some shit. Uh, one of my predictions was that the biggest challenge to Sanders, uh, will be the candidacy of Kamala Harris. Uh, I, I predicted that because I saw a lot of the same Clinton big donors going toward her. I saw some of Clinton's most obnoxious supporters uh, going toward her. Um, there was that Kamala Harris. Was it the Kamala Harris campaign where where the people like walked out of Bernie Sanders' speech and like have been counter protesting the Sunrise Movement and shit? But like, is her her, her campaign initially was supportive of Medicare for all, or at least pretended to be supportive of Medicare for all? Then and saw benefit in the polls during this time, then inexplicably decided that they're not going to pretend to be supportive of Medicare for all, at least a strong version, and has since sunk in the polls. Do you see over the next few months uh, Kamala Harris at all being uh, a threat to the top tier of candidates, or is her campaign just destined to be in this sort of middling tier? I mean, as uh, assuming Joe Biden collapses and yeah, a lot of his second choice voters go to Bernie, but there's still a lot of other Biden voters who are going to look elsewhere. I mean, is there still time or 
or situations in which Kamala Harris could jump into that top tier and be a legitimate challenge to the left flank? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, Go ahead and make a I, prediction, Owen, since you're so good at it. Yeah, I right. I'll make another one and come back and eat shit about it. Um, I mean, I, I always thought that 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 Harris was uh, kind of similar to Jill Brand in that she was, you know, just reptilian enough to kind of uh, be able to say things that would sound okay to progressives that didn't lean quite toward Sanders and Warren, um, but still also be the cop for, uh, you know, resistance nerds. But, I mean, Gabbard just fucking fucked her up, man. I mean, like, that, like, she, she destroyed her. Yeah. I, I don't know how you could possibly I don't see how she ever really comes back from that because it, it showed a couple things like first of all she first of all she was not prepared for the most obvious attack that she was going to get second of all her campaign's reaction for 24 hours was just to say you like Assad <laughs> I mean it's just it honestly like what it did was it just showed should have been like you like Modi yeah, except, well, except for the fact that then it's like, then you're, then, so then so, you're, uh, so the rest of the party. Yeah. Yeah. Although nobody, to be clear, as I know you know, Modi doesn't like any of them as much as he likes Gabbard, and I, and the feeling is mutual. It's a very long standing, uh, affection for Indian fascism from Gabbard. And, and she's been, anyway, whatever. I'm not going to digress too far into this, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't really know like where Harris is going to go, but she's been going up and down in the polls, but the most she's gone up is like 15%, and now she's stuck between 4 and 7%. So I just don't see what challenge she can present at this point. I felt a lot differently about this um, before Gabbard annihilated her, but now that she's just been kind of stuck in the polls after that. I just, I just don't see it. Yeah. Probably the only way she can reboot her campaign is to appeal to like the most craven national security state Democrats out there and be like, damn right. I locked up all these people and I'm going to lock up Donald Trump when I win. Right. I mean like the things that she could like her strategy for the September debate may be, to go after Sanders, but I don't see how it would be at all possible for her to land any of those hits, considering the whole, you signed on to my bill and then backed away from it after like three months, or, you you know, you signed on to it like two and a half years ago and three months ago, once you, I mean, like, he doesn't even need to make those attacks. Like the, like the, even though the press is friendly to her, the press is going to ask her about that kind of stuff and she's just not going to have a good answer for it. So I don't, I think that the, the establishment will eventually coalesce behind Warren because it probably is just a two person race. And then we'll see just how far their personal and professional friendship goes. Owen Higgins, senior editor, staff writer at commondreams.org, right? 
dot org. That's right. It's a good little independent website there. Check it out. Good content. Follow Owen on Twitter at E-O-I-N-H-I-G-G-I-N-S underscore on Twitter. Owen, thanks so much for coming on the show. Sam, a pleasure. Thanks again to Owen. Now time to read some poetry for the new subscribers on Patreon. Patreon.com slash District Sentinel. This first one goes out to Eric. He's the dab daddy serving up those dabs daily. Yabba dabba do. Thank you, Eric. Next up, we've got Jacob. Counting the days till McDonald's Monopoly. I'll take 10 Big Macs. Thank you, Jacob. Finally, this is for John. You can't unsee it. Chris Hayes looks like an owl up all night hooting. Thank you, John. And thank you to all the new subscribers. If you are one, the garbage can is up next for you. If not, that'll do it for the show today. Sam Knight is back next week. And we're in D.C., so you don't have to be.